Welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. We're talking this week about an issue of concern to people in Maine and people across the country, including Wisconsin, where my guest is from. We're talking about the risk of cyber attack and the danger that cyber poses not only to the government, and we all know about the 2016 election, but to things like the electric grid, the financial system, all of those, and to to, uh, small banks in Maine and Wisconsin and everywhere else, this is a constant threat that is only escalating. And in Congress last year, a bill was passed which created a National Cyber Solarium Commission. And I'm one of the co-chairs, and with me is the other co-chair, Representative Mike Gallagher, Republican from Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, he and I have now led, I think, three or four meetings of the commission. And uh, Mike, give me your thoughts on what we're doing and why. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It is an honor to be with you. Your assistant was asking me if I had ever been to Maine. I have been to Maine, but I can't remember where I went because it was back in college, but it was beautiful. All right. I, so I hope to return. We'll get you back. My background, I joined the military when I graduated from college, did seven years in the Marine Corps. I was a counterintelligence, human intelligence officer. So certainly the counterintelligence aspect of that, while I was not a technical specialist, not a cyber specialist, we dealt with threats from foreign intelligence, which is precisely related to what we're doing on the Cyber Solarium Commission. Did a tour at the strategic level in the national intelligence community here in D.C., worked in the Senate for a while, and then went back to Wisconsin and am now representing Northeast Wisconsin in Congress, uh, including Green Bay, home of the Packers, which I know is near and dear to your, your wife's heart. Yes, my, my, my wife is, lives and dies with the Packers. But I, I would say I think it's an incredibly timely and important effort that we're undertaking. I remember when I got a letter from the Office of Personnel Management saying that my military records, for example, had been hacked, as had thousands. Of, millions. Millions of others. And I think what's interesting in the current moment is that we've had a series of high-profile attacks or events like that. But because they haven't yet been at the intersection of massive physical destruction or loss of life, thank God, they haven't galvanized the attention of the American public in the way, let's say, the Soviets detonated a nuclear weapon in or September 11th. Exactly, right? So the, the challenge I think we have is how do you draw attention to an issue that I think strategically is just as significant as the advent of nuclear weapons, has profound implications for every other instrument of national power, is going to be the new domain of geopolitical competition, while most Americans don't yet feel, I think, the importance of this. But the reality is if you own a smartphone, if you're on the internet, most that's most people, you're at the forefront of geopolitical competition right now. Well, and the irony is that we don't want that galvanizing event. Exactly. But our job is to try to prevent it. Exactly. And that's the focus of the work. And by the way, this is not an abstract problem. I talked to a fellow in the in the utility industry recently whose company is attacked three million times a day. Wow to try to break into their system and break into the electric grid. Not necessarily to take it down now, but to be ready to take it down in some other circumstance at a later date. I've talked to small banks that are attacked 100,000 times a day. And so this is not an academic issue. This is a real current threat. And of course, the 2016 elections, we saw the Russians, which they've done in other elections and other places across the world, using this cyberspace as a way to attack our republic, our democracy. And so this commission, I should have talked about the the membership. It's very unusual. 
It was created by act of Congress, signed by the president. There are four members of Congress, yourself, myself, and then a Democratic member of the House, Jim Longevin, a Republican member of the Senate, Ben Sass. And then there are six members from the executive branch, the Department of Defense, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security. And then there are private sector. I think maybe it's four members from the executive and, and six from the private sector. It's a very broad-based group, and the whole idea is to assess how do we protect our country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I should say, kind of to relate that to what you said before, the thing that has most surprised me in transitioning from the military and the intelligence community to now being a member of Congress, representing 730,000 people in Northeast Wisconsin, is previously I was looking at this purely from a national security perspective, but now it's amazing to me how frequently I have small businesses in my district who... You know, don't have the resources like a you know Morgan Stanley or a big bank do to invest millions of dollars in cybersecurity saying we got hacked or we had a ransomware event. So this is something that just crosses the economic spectrum. It certainly crosses the spectrum from hardcore military competition to everyday economic competition. And it's something we're all struggling to wrap our heads around. I think related to the structure of the commission, it is unique. And I think it gives us a real opportunity, particularly with the membership of existing members of Congress, to make sure that the report we're tasked with writing isn't just something that reads well and then sits on a shelf and collects dust, but rather has concrete legislative proposals that are ready to go when we're done. Now, obviously, we're sort of in the initial phases right now. We'll see what comes out of it. But I really think the structure of the commission is a strength, having legislative branch represented, the executive branch represented, and then having that outside expertise. And so hopefully we can pull this thing off. Well, having the outside is important because one of the things that makes this complicated is it's not simply a governmental problem. It's not Air Force to Air Force. Exactly. The attack will probably be on something in the private sector, whether it's the gas pipeline system or the financial system or uh, water system serving a major city. So one of the hard things is figuring out how we, how the government, can interface with the private sector safely and securely and in a timely way. These are things that happen in seconds. So that's one of our primary challenges, I think. At a time, too, when I think cooperation between the private sector, particularly in sort of the advanced Silicon Valley type companies, cooperation between them and the federal government, I, I don't think is at a is necessarily headed in a positive direction. And you so, think? Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right. Obviously, we had prominent stories about Project Maven with Google last year, and which I think to me is this gets to this interesting broad question that our work really touches on. So if you believe that our, our primary competitor in the space is China, you know, maybe Russia to in second place, how do we sort of win this competition with the Chinese over the long term? You're right. We can't, I guess just quickly to make the point, we can't do what the Chinese do by sort of taking complete control of our economy, dictating where our best and brightest go to study. We really need to preserve that unique entrepreneurial spirit of the private sector, but it requires those people to be patriotic and to have a productive relationship with the federal government. But ironically, I call this geopolitical jujitsu, <laughs> where you use your opponent's strength against him. Mm -hmm. And our strength is our open society, exactly. First Amendment, free speech open media, free press, and opponents are using that to hurt us, to undermine our, our values and our system. So that's one of the challenges. I think one of the things, and we've talked a lot about this, and I'm sure we will as we move forward, but I've been working on this now for four or five years in both intelligence and armed services. We're a cheap date. Somebody attacks us and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Or if it happens, it's a sanction and it's six months later, and it really doesn't... Exactly. 
it's no deterrent. And I think deterrence is one of the best ways to, you talked about how do we win. I don't know if we win, but we build a situation where there's, where it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Where you can impose costs for you know, taking certain actions against the United States, our interests. But even that raises really difficult dilemmas that we're already exploring on the commission, right? One is the problem of attribution. Do we yeah, have who, the ability? Who did it? Exactly. Who did it? Can we identify that in a timely manner? And can we reveal that without compromising the way in which we got that information, right? So that has a very interesting set of issues uh, related to it. The question also of if you get attacked in cyberspace, let's say someone steals your IP or does a denial of service attack, in order to be proportional in your response, does your response have to be confined to the domain of cyberspace? Or can you take a kinetic action or can you take an economic sanction, as you mentioned before? And then over time, as you start to impose costs, does that develop into a norm against sort of malicious cyber activity? All of these things are very sort of new issues we're thinking through. Well, we've been fighting physical wars for thousands of years. We're at the very beginning of figuring out a whole new, you use the term, domain of conflict. Mm -hmm. And uh, the question is, are we going to be able to set up rules of the road or deterrence that will Mm. change the calculus. I remember asking one of the intelligence officials in one of the hearings, is anything we're doing going to diminish the risk of this happening again? And the the general said, nothing we're doing will change our adversary's calculus. I've never (laughs) forgotten that (laughs) phrase, which basically means, like I said, they have a free shot at us. And and yet, how do you calibrate it in such a way that there is a response yeah. that's a deterrent that doesn't escalate it into some kind of more full-scale conflict? Exactly right. Exactly right. I, I'm sort of in my mind now, after we've had our first few meetings, thinking about this along three lines. One is this policy, and you've just, in a very articulate way, laid out a lot of the policy concerns. The other is process, and I know you've also been a very outspoken member of Congress when it comes to just pointing out the fact that we no, have, nobody's in charge. Nobody's in charge, right? So that's a problem, right? If there's not a single belly button you can push in the federal government, that's a problem. And then the third is is people. So policy, process, people. And ultimately, I think just as our biggest lapses in cyber have been people-related, right? Whether it's Snowden, whether it's an NSA contractor taking something home they shouldn't have, whether it's just individual practicing bad cyber hygiene, our success will ultimately rely upon people. Can we sort of leverage the talent that's out there in America and around the world, really, to build a credible cyber defense? And can we have a more flexible model with the military in particular, where we have people that are willing to work with the military? Maybe they don't want to wear a uniform. Maybe they don't want to get high and tight like I had in the Marine Corps. Who would want to get high and tight at the end of the day? But they're still patriotic. They want to serve their country. How can we harness the talent that's out there. It's going to require a totally different model and way of doing business. And if we haven't thoroughly depressed our listeners thus far, <laughs> 5G changes everything. Oh, my gosh. 5G is it's not just 4G to 5G. 5G is an ultra-fast, through-the-air internet that will then connect everything. Mm-hmm. Driverless cars, your microwave, your refrigerator will email your grocery store and say, I need more milk. I mean, everything's going to be connected which creates whole new areas for cyber attack. Exactly. And basically, there's four companies that dominate the market in 5G. Two are Chinese companies, uh, Huawei and ZTE, which are effectively, my belief at least, are effectively controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, or at least there's a 2017... And that's why I think the administration is right to be trying to persuade our, our allies to not embed their system in the middle of their new 
telecommunications network. I would agree, because there's this interesting debate going on as to whether you can, let's say you're a country, Britain, right, for, right now is having this debate, a country that wants sort of cheap Chinese technology. African countries are probably a better example of this. Can you mitigate the counterintelligence threat posed by Huawei or ZTE hardware on your network? I believe, based on what I've heard from people that sort of do this for a living, you cannot. And therefore, the only answer is to exclude Huawei and ZTE from your networks. But if we can't get our closest allies- the danger allies, is that everything that goes that you do on your phone ends up going through Beijing. Yeah. The best analogy I heard was, imagine you, know, you hire someone to build you a brand new house. Now, you can put separate locks on it, but that person has an intimate knowledge of the design of the house, its vulnerabilities, has ways to get in the back door, and at a time and place of their choosing can choose to rob you of everything that you own. That's uh, a, that is a, that's a very powerful and, and And so what's interesting is, so you consider our closest allies, the so-called Five Eyes Alliance, right? Australia and New Zealand are in the right place on this. They basically said to Huawei, the Chinese Communist Party, you can't compete for the future of the internet. Britain's having a really, and Canada, they're both having really interesting debates domestically about this right now. And just think, if we can't get on the same page as our four closest allies. But, but to me, yeah. the fact that they're having this a hard time tells me that we haven't been, done a very good job of making the case. I would agree with that. Uh, I, I think we're playing catch up uh, right now. I mean, you've been in, in Congress a, a bit longer than I have. I mean, was 5G the topic of conversation a no, year ago? Not, I mean, not, not in the last 18 months, I'd say. Yeah, I think we're waking up to the threat. Hopefully, it's not too little too late. I think we still have a, a stronger hand to play, but it's hard, right? Because China subsidizes these, these companies, they can discount the price by 30% relative to their competitors, Ericsson and Nokia. And then the other thing is, in the U.S., we've stopped making some of this hardware. Huawei relies upon a lot of U.S. components, but... The other two companies that I alluded to, they're European companies. They're not American companies. And so, and then supply chains are globally integrated and very complex. And so, well, let, be, before we, no one's going to be able to sleep in Maine after right. this. No, I know. <laughs> before we wind up, though, the structure of our commission is kind of interesting. And, and I think people are probably scratching their heads about the word solarium. This is your expertise. How do we get to the solarium? It refers to an exercise unique in the history of the modern presidency called Project Solarium that took place in 1953 at the beginning of the Eisenhower administration where Eisenhower was looking at the direction of our foreign policy, convinced that we were headed towards disaster, and he, along with John Foster Dulles and other key members of the administration, commissioned a competitive exercise, formed three separate task forces to evaluate and develop three separate strategies for how we would approach the Soviet Union. They worked for six weeks at the National War College. They then debated for a day. Uh, in in a, front of Eisenhower. In front he of was, Eisenhower. He was the judge. He was actually there uh, at the National Security Council on July 16th, 1953. And then that led to Eisenhower's new look grand strategy, which was later codified in NSC 162-2. Which guided our policy toward the Soviet Union for 35 years. I would argue. And I think most historians have accepted that. I mean, Truman sort of had an original concept of containment. Korean War happens. He, he does NSC 68, which went a little bit overboard. Eisenhower kind of set a steady course that various presidents adjusted this way and that way. But there's a very convincing book out there if you want to learn more called Waging Peace by Robert Billy and Richard Immerman. That I makes thought you were going to cite your own book. No, God, no, no. Uh, I, my boring article. But, notes, but right. we're setting up this project in very much the same way. We've got yeah. three teams we're going to be looking at what's called persistent engagement, which is letting the other side know that we're in there mm -hmm. and it's a more aggressive than just taking it. The other is deterrence, a more vigorous 
response. And the third is norms and sort of Geneva Convention of cyber, exactly. if you will. We're furthest away from that, but we're going to have our three teams. We've had our briefings, and instead of Eisenhower, our commission is going to be the judge probably in September. And hopefully we're going to be – the whole idea is to come up with a, a policy, a doctrine, a strategy that can be public, that our adversaries know about, so they know that if they come after us, there'll be a price to be paid. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm delighted to be working on this with you. Uh, as am I, as I've always said, if you can't get Eisenhower, Angus King is the next best thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm not going to touch that one. I'll let it go. Mike Gallagher from Green Bay, Wisconsin, great to have you with us. And I'm looking forward to working with you over the course of this year on thank this you, Senator. very important back. project. I want to thank Mike Gallagher for joining me and also for the work that he's doing on the Cyber Solarium Commission. Uh, he's a great partner, and we're looking forward to uh, some serious project uh, progress on this issue. We'll be back uh, in a minute with uh, someone from Maine who is deeply involved in this issue, and we'll see some insights from the front lines in Augusta. Welcome back to Inside Maine. Today, the subject is cybersecurity, and it's something that should concern everybody in Maine and people across the country. We're talking about some very serious issues that range from attacks on our elections and our national electric grid to attacks on businesses and small businesses and banks in places like Maine. And with me now is Henry Felch, who uh, grew up in Maine. He joined the Army, served for 22 years on a M1A1 Abrams tank stationed in Europe and Korea, and then he got into network security. I'm not even going to list his degrees because it would take the rest of our time, but Professor uh, Felsch is uh, at the University of Maine in Augusta. He was one of the founders of their cybersecurity program currently in its fifth year. And the program was the first in the country recognized by the National Security Agency as a Center for Academic Excellence in Information Assurance and Cyber Defense. Professor Felsch, thank you for joining us. And uh, first talk about the program that you uh, are involved with uh, up at the University of Maine Augusta. Well, thank you, Senator King. Uh, Our program here at UMA is starting in our fifth year. It was approved by the Maine Board of Trustees the system, main system board of trustees in 2015. And right now at UMA, we have over 250 students engaged in our cybersecurity education or cybersecurity program. We have students from across 15 states nationwide and across the entire state of Maine. And are these these individuals being trained to be technicians and support personnel for companies, government, whoever, uh, in the protecting uh, networks and protecting the, the cyber assets. Is that the program? That is the program. We, we train them in policy. We train them in the technical side of detection and how to respond. And we even have a, a focus area in forensics, so to how to clean up afterwards. And you said you have over 200 students. And is it a four-year program, two-year program? Is it a major it is a major program. It's a four-year program. We graduated about 10 students this year with the largest group coming next year. We have an incoming class of about 45 to 50 students for this fall. Let me guess. Those students who graduate from your program have no trouble whatsoever in finding jobs. 
Well, they, they sort of have a trouble if they want to stay in Maine. If they want to leave Maine, they have no trouble finding jobs. The program's ever-changing. We just finished installing a major, one of the major cyber ranges we have from uh, CyberBit. We just finished training and launched the main cyber range today here at Augusta to provide realistic hands-on training in network defense response and detection. Well, let me take it back to the sort of practical level. Is this something people in Maine need to be concerned about? Has there ever been a cyber attack in Maine? He asked, knowing the answer. <laughs> well, it's if you're in Augusta, you know about the the city of Augusta had a ransomware attack, which basically shut down the city for several days while they tried to resolve the issue. Explain ransomware. Ransomware is where an attacker will come in and encrypt all your files and demand a ransom for you to receive the private key to unencrypt the files. And it's not the first time in Maine. So they're literally taking your con computer system hostage, and this happened in Augusta, Maine. This happened in Augusta, to the city of Augusta. And, yes, they take your computer hostage and all your files. Every file is encrypted with a public key, and the only way to decrypt it is with the private key. So how did, how did we defeat this? Did the city have to pay, or did you all help them find a way to get out of this situation? Well, the city did not choose to pay. The ransom demand was for $100,000. They chose to ignore it, and they went to backups that they had, you know, to a previous backup and continued operations. But it took a while to get back online, which set down essential, not, not critical services, but licensing and everything else within the city. So the problem I see with this is that Attackers, as, as Representative Gallagher mentioned earlier, a, a cyber attack on the city of Augusta in Maine is no significance to anyone outside of maybe Maine or even the city of Augusta. And we see these attacks, as Representative Gallagher mentioned, in his area on a lot of small business and municipalities where it doesn't raise a blimp in the radar. But as a hacker, those hackers are gaining valuable experiences and skills of how to navigate and convince somebody to at least an inroad through social engineering to gain a foothold to maybe attack a larger city, a larger municipality. Or, or a larger company. One of the things I've observed recently in studying these kind of attacks is that the hackers are now going through like a small uh, subcontractor to get into the, to the big guy. They can't get into Lockheed Martin because it's a big company with a lot of defenses and really good cyber hygiene. But they might get in. I, I read, I, I can't remember the, where it was, but they got in through a, a headhunting firm, which had five or six people, didn't have a lot of defenses. But they got through there into the larger company's computers. And that's one of the dangers that we're, we're seeing, isn't it? That, that is the major danger. And as you look at Maine... We are a lot of small companies up here. A lot of these companies' IT departments consist of one or two people. And in the case of the city of Augusta, five IT people to manage all the IT resources. And do we have good hygiene? They, they do the best that they can with what the resources they have. 
And basically, a lot of small companies hope for the best. Well, isn't one of the best defenses is for the individual people that work for any company to just be educated and, and alert and aware of how the system works? Because often it starts with an email called a phishing email, which says, click here, your password has been compromised, and, and we'll give you a new password. And it looks just like it came from Google or Microsoft or whoever. And... Uh, people fall for that. That's really one of the best ways to defend it is if we're all better at being suspicious and careful. It is one of the best ways of doing it, but we have to sometimes provide that training. And I think we lack in that training effort. And I think one of the responsibilities of the academia should be to provide training to these smaller companies and to these municipalities but it lacks, we lack the resources, we lack the people to conduct the training. I mean, if I was to get a grant like Virginia Tech of $4 million, I could provide training to a lot of municipalities and small companies. I'll, I'll see what I can do. I'll go to work on that. <laughs> but, Give me a week or so. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, what I see in Maine is that we are a target. We're a state where we have a lot of small businesses we have individuals that work very hard and sometimes are very much overworked and going through emails quickly sometimes will make a mistake to click on that ransomware request without paying much attention to it because they're so involved in a lot of everything that's involved. Because if you run a small business, you're, you're devoting 70, 80 hours of your time each week to make that work, to make a profit. Yeah, and, and, and chances are you don't have the, the, uh, the income to to have a, a tech specialist or a, a certainly a cyber protection specialist on your company of five or six people. Right, and, and that, that presents a problem. And our attackers are more sophisticated. They're more nation states that are dedicated. As Representative Gallagher mentioned, they pick the brightest minds in their country, train them to do just this. And, you know, it, it is a challenge because my last two years in the military, I worked network defense at a major military installation. It's where I learned security. And we were hammered all the time for attacks coming in. And, you know, I remember my commander saying we've never been compromised, but my real response was, how do we know? <laughs> Yeah, if you are, you're not. Your chances are you may not know it. Well, another concern in Maine, we have some very strategically important businesses with a lot of intellectual property. Bath Ironworks and Pratt Whitney and the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard come immediately to mind, and there are others. But those are places where hackers would love to get in, and I'm sure they're attacked daily. And they are. Oh, you know, yeah. I've I've talked to them down at Portsmouth, and they are way beyond everything that they can. They can't get enough trained people, and that's what we're hoping to do with our new purchase of a range is to provide training to some of these companies within Maine to show them because the training software we got provides the most realistic training I've seen outside actually doing it. But it costs a lot of money to run all that software, so it limits to what we can do and what we can provide. But couldn't you, given your knowledge, and you make it a student project, but couldn't you design a 8-minute or 10-minute movie animation of how to avoid compromising the system? These are the kind of emails and, and that kind of thing that you could, uh, maybe the university could make a little money here. You guys design something and you can sell it to smaller companies all over the country. Well, I think that's what we're trying to work on with our main cyber range. But one thing we all have been working with is we've had students that have been going out to small investment firms 
of one in two people and doing penetration tests and policy reviews to help them shore up their defenses because they face the same regulations as huge financial services of 500 people and they've only got one or two employees. So we've had students who have been going out and doing that free of charge sort of as a community service. You hit on something that I have been very close to over the last two or three years, and that is red teaming. That is people who are good guys, but who try to hack to show people how vulnerable they are. Because I can't tell you how many hearings I've had with, you know, corporate officials and state officials, and they say, oh, we're all set. We're safe. We've got it made. And then you red team them, and a skull and crossbones comes up on their laptop that says, you know, we got you. That's a way of getting their attention. Don't you agree that many businesses and institutions think they're more secure than they really are? I, I would agree with you. We have a false sense of security, and I think in Maine, we even think it's even far removed because why would somebody want to attack us? We're, we're sort of a small company. Why are we important and that's where education comes in, because we can show how that small company could lead to the compromise of a huge company later on or provide the pathway or the vector in, just like small utility companies are at risk to the bigger utility companies. Sure, because they're they're connected to the grid. They're connected to ISO New England or or whoever. I mean, I can see that danger. And I think to take it back to Augusta, I mean, who would have thought that the city of Augusta would be a, a victim of a major ransomware effort? And and yet it happened. And if it can happen there, it can happen pretty much anywhere. That's very true, Senator. It can happen anywhere. And whoever did it in Augusta has the blueprint to do it somewhere else. I mean, it isn't just government agencies. It's individual citizens who are at risk as well. Are you working with any other schools in Maine to sort of team up and develop some of these programs jointly? We just started a new cyber program at the University of Maine at Presque Isle. It will be starting this fall to work with up in the county. University of Maine, Fort Kent is a partner, as well as the University of Southern Maine in Portland. And plus we have Thomas College in Waterville has a cyber program and a master's degree in cyber. That, and we're sort of, I, I think it's interesting in cyber is that we tend to collaborate more collectively than a lot of other programs and other colleges because we're very small here and we tend to collaborate and share information and share our expertise. Well, it sounds like we have the makings of a cluster on this, of a real center for uh, studying this subject and producing people that can work in Maine and also across the country. And I think that's an exciting opportunity. This is, uh, unfortunately, a growth area for employment, but it's one that, uh, as you know very well, it, it's important to Maine businesses. It's important to government, and uh, this is the where, the where the future is. Well, Dr. Felsch, I, or, uh, Henry, uh, I will be friends here. You can call me Angus. Henry, thank you for the work that you're doing for the students up there and uh, for the state of Maine, and I hope I never need your services professionally. How about that? Well, I, uh, I hope I never have to <laughs> <laughs> provide the services, and I, I, what I'd like to see is more state involvement from the legislature and the state down, as well as some of the federal government to help some of these small municipalities and companies and to help to do the research we need here in Maine because we are a small university system and sometimes get excluded from a lot of the grant opportunities that go to the major universities.
Well, I hope you'll consider me an ally. It's a subject that I'm very, very interested in. I think it's very important in the future both in Maine and in the country, and and I really appreciate the work you're doing. So let me know how we can be helpful down here and keep in touch, and I'll look forward to visiting the program when I'm in Augusta. Uh, We look forward to having you stop by sometime and see what we do up here, and um, we very much appreciate your support down in Washington. Well, thank you very much, and thank you all for joining us today on Inside Maine. This is one of those topics that I think is one that we don't think about very much, but it is very important, and I only want to wish our listeners in Maine a cyber-safe day. Thanks a lot. See you next time on Inside Maine.